You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home from you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe on uh, everywhere you find uh, your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, uh, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at Pod on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, don't forget to review our show on uh, Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. You can also favorite us on Stitcher. Uh, I should also mention that we are on Patreon, so if you want to support what we're doing uh, for only a dollar a month, uh, please do. It uh, really helps in the production of the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash speechbubblepod. Uh, If you want to uh, donate $3 a month, uh, I'm producing some bonus content, including audio blogs. It'll give you an idea of uh, who I'm thinking uh, you know, for the next guest and some of the stuff that I'm reading. Uh, we also have some guests that have done uh, breakdowns of their most famous work, including Chip Zdarsky, who breaks down uh, Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man number 310, his Eisner award-winning issue. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash speechbubblepod. With me today, we have Graham McKay. Graham is an editorial cartoonist for the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, those of you who've been uh, you know, longtime fans of Speech Bubble may remember that we had Wes Tyrell on, who's also a, a cartoonist, and uh, he's great friends with Graham. In fact, this, this podcast has been in the works for, for quite a while. And, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and COVID-19 is giving us an opportunity to, uh, to finally get together and, and chat. Uh, Graham is a, is a great cartoonist, you know, doing commentary about, you know, Canadian politics and culture and the arts and that sort of thing. Uh, his work has been featured in This Is Serious, Canadian indie comics. That was an exhibit that happened in early 2020 at the Hamilton Art Gallery. That's also where, where Graham is from. Uh, you might remember if you heard the uh, Fiona Smith episode, 
that she was also featured, and uh, other uh, past Beach Mobile guests were featured as well, including uh, Chester Brown and Seth. So uh, we're very honored to to have Graham on. Uh, these these are the traditional comics that we usually talk about, and uh, I'm very excited to like build my my library of of editorial cartoonists that uh, that that have been on the show. So Graham. Uh, how are you? Aaron, I'm very well, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's totally, the pleasure's all mine. I, I mean, like I said <laughs> off the top, like, we, we've been trying to do this for a while, and, you know, things just just didn't connect, and, and now, you know, <laughs> with, with nobody really doing anything, or people having more openings in their schedule, because they have to stay home, it's actually more convenient. Like, I can I can talk to people from anywhere. Yeah, but it's been kind of weird because I haven't, uh, while I have deadlines and we all have deadlines in this world, um, our schedules have been pretty non-existent. So, you know, when the appointed hour came to, to, to meet with you, it was like, wow, this is something I haven't had to do in like six weeks is to, to meet up for an appointment. So uh, it, it's a bit jarring that way, you know, because, you know, we just go about our, our groundhog like day and get up and, you know, walk the dog and, and get on with the day. But uh, this was sort of a, a weird thing to actually, uh, you know, set up and, and actually attend this Zoom audio session with you. So, so uh, carry on. This is fun. It's kind of weird, though, I got to say. Yeah, as somebody that like works from home uh, to do your illustrations, I mean, I'm a freelance journalist too, and I, I kind of found like the the stay-at-home orders like you know for me at least not much seemed to change. Like it seemed like mm -hmm. you know people that don't usually work from home from home were sort of freaking out. But how were you finding uh, doing your doing your work? Uh, with the pandemic on, is it is it basically typical to what you normally do, except the deadlines are a little bit looser? Uh, it is very much like my schedule that I, I had at the office, and and I'm one of the few guys that actually in the editorial world, editorial cartooning world, who actually still went to the office. Oh, um, a, a lot of my colleagues uh, left the office a long time ago and uh, have been working from home for years. Uh, and and occasionally I would work from home if um, you know I had like a someone have to come and fix the the you know dryer or something like that I'd I'd have to stay um, and it was always not a pleasant experience I found I, I found there are too many temptations in the house and distractions and the quality of my work was often less working from home than in an office um, but you know that was the biggest worry about this pandemic was having to get used to the fact that, hey, I, I'm going to have to work from home. And sorry, there's my dog barking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I rely on a photocopier machine. I don't have a photocopier machine here. Uh, I rely on these you know, wonderful computers that my company uh, gears me up with. And, uh, you know, my computer isn't the most reliable thing here at home. Um, but it, it's actually turned out to be something I've become quite accustomed to. And uh, it's something that we are all basically um, starting to, at the Hamilton Spectator, we're downsizing. We're all, and like a lot of newspapers, we're um, 
we're about to move from a big giant building uh, that used to house a, a press operation, or a, a, like, like actual presses, um, to a much smaller operation um, tucked away on the Hamilton Mountain. Um, so we've already been like given the uh, preparation to, to downsize and some of us journalists, myself, uh, some of the copy editors would have to start working from home uh, because the building that we're supposed to occupy come October is, it's just a tiny little office. Um, so this, the pandemic has actually offered something um, that we're all trying to wrap our heads around and has, and the adjustment has come very hastily, but I think quite smoothly. I think um, I kind of like working from home now and, you know, there'll come a time when the, the restrictions are lowered and I can go back to the Hamilton Spectator, but it'll essentially be to, to clear my desk and clear all the stuff that it, that's been there uh, for the last 23 years. Uh, wow. Working there. So how are you finding the, the copier issue, though? Like, uh, how do you, how, <laughs> what, what's, what's the procedure and how is it different now that you're working from well, home? My process used to be just a pen and ink on, on Bristol board. And then I would um, take that piece of Bristol over the big giant photocopier machine. And, uh, and then uh, I, I entered into my computer and that's how I'd color it. Um, but even within the last uh, couple of months uh, with the pandemic, I've been just getting used to, to drawing everything on a, on my iPad and, uh, and then throwing it into my computer and then adding the colors there. And even like working on a, an iPad has been a massive change for me to, to go through. I'm, I'm not used to that. And I never liked the, you know, the, you know, writing on a piece of glass. I never got accustomed to it. Whereas my colleagues have been doing it for years as well. And, uh, I've had to adjust very quickly. And so the photocopier is something I don't even really need anymore. I don't even really need pa paper. Uh, I do my, my sketch with pencil, paper, and then I, I often, you know, I do it the old-fashioned way. I, I would use the uh, non-repro blue uh, as the outline, and then I, I'd ink in the lines. And I'm, I basically do that still uh, with graphite, and then I put it into the Photoshop, and then I convert the graphite to blue and then I throw it back into my iPad and I'm actually drawing on top of the, the blue line. So there is some traditional stuff that I'm still doing, but it's all, it's all on, uh, it's all electronic now for the most part. So how does the, the electronic process feel? Because I, I know that there's a lot of um, comic artists, traditional comic artists that I've, that I've interviewed that, that have switched to, you know, Cintiq or, or iPad or, or drawing digitally. In fact, I think the majority of people in the comic industry now do uh, draw digitally. Uh, and a lot of them find it better. Like you can do more things with like lighting and you can, you can create more depth and there, there's more technology involved in, in, in what the picture actually looks like and that sort of thing. But then, you know, there, there are like the old school uh, comic artists who, who you know drew uh, traditionally for years who can't get used to it, so they just they just still mm -hmm. draw traditionally. So, how do you? I mean, how do you find the feel 
of having to draw on your iPad? Uh, are there things you like about it or the things you don't like about it? Yeah, I, I still have issues with the, um, the drawing on glass thing. And I understand you can, you can get screens that kind of mimic the, the feel of uh, Bristol or paper, whatever. Um, I, I do like the fact that you can go over, you know, like just press a little button and you can go over mistakes. But I tend to be doing that all the time a lot more than I did uh, when I was drawing on paper. You know, you, you tend to concentrate on getting it right the first time with paper, but with um, digital, you, you tend to be a bit more lazy and it's like, ah, oh, you know, you can go like several strokes in and then you realize you've messed something up and then you just have to hit one little button and, and um, you know, you just start over again. So you, I think there's a little bit of time wasting and a little bit of laziness that, that comes, a little bit of reliance on the technology. But I, I would have to agree with, with what others say. I, I, it really, there's, there's a lot more potential to it. Um, and, and the other thing that would drive me crazy is, you know, I'm, I always use my, the, the same nib. I, I did the old fashioned thing with pen and, and nib. And the nib, depending on whatever ink, and I'm not a big, I'm not fussy when it comes to whatever ink I use. I just go to the store and I grab whatever's on sale. I tend to, I, I, um, I, I found that uh, my, my pens would just sort of jam up with ink in recent years and it just became so frustrating. And then I'd be throwing these nibs out and, and um, I'm just glad I don't have to go through that because that was a bit of a time consuming thing that I, 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 I don't miss at all is the, the jammed up nibs. And with, so, go yeah. ahead. And with the, like, you know, with the, iPad. I'm assuming you can you can mimic the look of that anyway. Did you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I also find that some of these programs, like I just got the new Photoshop, and I find, oh my goodness, there's so many bells and whistles on this. I don't know where to start, and so I'm gonna have to watch some of these tutorials because there is an incredible array of nibs that you can now get that. Um, I, I have no idea of, of what, what there is out there. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the transition is happening. I'm not, once, once you go digital, you're not going to go back. And, uh, I, as much as I really admire when I, you know, when I go into these uh, gallery showings of cartoonist work, like, uh, the one we had in Hamilton, you know, you look at the, the Chester Browns, the Seth work and all the other work. And these are full pages of, of graphic novels that you know you, you can't mimic that in a digital sense to have it actually on a piece of paper and see some of the lines and things in creating that these works of art is is something that's is quite amazing and i i do sort of lament that loss that will eventually come uh not having a, an original paper product and um you know, with with cartoonists, often we could we can sell some of our originals to the people who are depicting in the cartoons, and that's not something you can do anymore if you're doing it digitally. So those days are done. But you can still take commissions. Uh, you certainly on paper oh, yeah. and traditionally and stuff like that. Well, that's that's the problem is that when you become too much of a slave to the digital thing, you know, you're going to go back and it's going to be awkward. Like I've done that. 
um, gone back, tried to draw something, and then you're looking for the button to, you know, get rid of the mistakes, and it, it's not there anymore. So it's uh, it's it's frustrating, and it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Right. So how long have you been have you been drawing digitally? Like how long has this transition been happening? Just just since the pandemic started? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. There was a few weeks before that, um, but um, yeah, just I'm a baby at this. Wow, it's amazing! Like like forced change in your entire technique, uh, just because you know that's like one of the unintended consequences, good or bad, of of, of this thing. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just to your point about uh, this is serious and Chester Brown. Uh, one of the things that I that I really found fascinating. Uh, about about his work in particular is the way that he just used like post-its to like go over his mistakes and and like redraw things on post-its so you could see like different parts of the process by like flipping flipping the post-its not that I touched the work or anything but it was really obvious that like you know there were some post-its had like more detail and stuff and and I I just admired like the bravery of being able to just put like a post-it over and, and, and started, yeah, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, yeah, but I guess, you know, that, that, I guess that's the way he's been doing things for all these years. It's, right. uh, mm -hmm. And it, it's a great uh, thing for the archivists of the future to see, well, what, this is what the process involved in doing these masterpieces. And uh, good for him for doing that because a lot of these things are things that we toss out, right? Right, right, exactly. So I guess I should, I should go back a bit and talk about uh, like your early life and, and how you got into uh, editorial cartooning and how you found yourself in the position you're in now. Uh, so I will. Um, so, so where did you grow up and uh, what was your, your childhood like? Um, I, I grew up in the town where I, well, the city where I uh, live now. Uh, at the time, Dundas is where I actually grew up, and it's this—it's a little town um, west of Hamilton. It's now part of Hamilton. It all, all these little communities around Hamilton amalgamated back in 2000. So I grew up in Dundas, which is a nice little town. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a very comfortable house. My dad was a dentist. I had uh, three other siblings. Uh, lived on a nice ranch-style 60s house along the um a ravine that butts up against the escarpment so i'm a i'm a child of the escarpment the niagara escarpment and so i a lot of my youth was spent you know going through the um the ravines and everything like that so i i have a great attachment to the outdoors that way uh, other than that i was just a you know <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time like any other aspiring cartoonists sitting at home and and uh drawing all the time all the time um you know and i wasn't really a, a, a sporty kid um i just you know it was just a, a, a time of I, I guess i was more creative than my siblings were my neighbors were but you know i i still went out and played you know cops and robbers and all that sort of thing but my real passion for drawing came very early um, and I, I guess it had something to do with the books I was given and you know just uh, who knows I don't it, it's hard to tell it's such a long time ago I, I don't 
I don't really know where, where it all happened, the, the cartooning thing. Um, but yeah, it was a comfortable upbringing um, in Dundas. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a very happy childhood. I, 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 can't, I can't lie and say it was a horrible childhood and living, you know, growing up in poverty was a very comfortable upbringing. Are you, are you the oldest of your siblings? Like, where do you, where do you fall among them? I'm in the middle. So uh, I've got a younger brother who's two years younger than me. And then I have a sister who's four years younger. And then uh, an old, the oldest brother, David, is, uh, is uh, five years older than me. So I'm 51. So we're all in our middle age now. And uh, was your mom a stay-at-home mom uh, with your dad being a dentist? Or uh, what did she do? Like a lot of dentists, the mom, the wife, would be the uh, office manager. So she ruled her, the office with a iron fist. And uh, that often got her into trouble, got my father into trouble. But uh, it was, uh, she was for the most part a stay-at-home mom um when she wasn't working at the office and you know she'd go in for you know the afternoon to do the books or whatever um but she was very present during our childhood wow that's awesome uh i just just curious did having a father who was a dentist make the dentist any more bearable or was it worse because it was your dad sticking <laughs> fingers in your mouth in your mouth <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, I've I've had that question before. It wasn't it it was actually kind of okay to have your father as an end. It was kind of cool. And occasionally I remember my my whole class got to have tours of the, the dental office. So, you know, I, I was a bit of a hero. Hey, here's my dad's office. And, you know, I, I got to be the model uh for the class going in there and, you know, he cleaned my teeth as my class looked on. Kinda of weird, but uh you know, it, it was it was okay having a dad as a dentist because you could you could scream at him when you think he was poking around a little bit too much, and you know he'd call you names. And <laughs> but you know you, <laughs> I, I, it was he retired um, about ten years ago, so it, it was kind of weird to actually start going to someone who wasn't your father right. poking around in your mouth with with his fingers. That's an um, interesting experience for sure. Like yeah, yeah. Like, you're, but, you're not doing it the way my dad used to. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be like, what? So. Yeah. But, you know, I have two daughters and, you know, we will have them over or we'll be over there. And, you know, he always, he's never going to have his, his interest in, in poking his fingers in kids' mouths. And we kind of joke about it. I said, you know, Papa put his, mouth, his fingers in my mouth. And he said, well, he's looking around to see what kind of, like, anatomy he had, you have your teeth he wants to know you know he wants to know what kind of orthodontics your father is going to have to pay for in the years and months to come yeah yeah wow that's cool so uh in terms of drawing like a lot of people that i've interviewed have said that like you know they they were drawing before they could walk it was like a really early on sort of experience um do you know like kind of what attracted you to to wanting to draw or is it just something that you that you did 
I guess I know my father uh, actually uh, before he became a dentist he he did dabble in OCA he went to OCA back in the 50s and he was there for a year and then he decided he didn't like that very 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 much uh, and he actually had teachers questioning the students and saying you know most of you aren't going to do very well on this <laughs> and so he he basically took that quite literally and they went on to to study architecture and he actually he uh, designed a few homes and didn't like that and then he went off to, to dentistry but he he was born with um, a, an artistic talent and I think he tried to cultivate that in his kids um, my mother as well and so they they supply us with a lot of really cool books um, I, I can recall Richard Scarry as being one of the authors of those great books and uh you know you know with lowly the worm and all the pigs and i can remember the dictionary the the richard scary dictionary and my goodness i that was um a dog-eared book by the time i was 10 years old uh, just incredible drawings detailed drawings of cities and airports and fire engines and just cross sections of houses and things like that, that I think I, I, I'd like to, to think that's really what got me hooked because I, I still deploy a lot of that kind of um, visuals in, in my cartoons today. Um, I, I would say, yeah, that, that Richard Scarry did it to me. I think he got me hooked on cartooning. And there's a few examples of works that I did that my parents kept. There's one of, um, I did a, when I was like a three-year-old, I was born in 1968. I did a, a, um, a skyline of Toronto. My grandparents lived in Toronto. So I was always, you know, we were always going back and forth to, to, for Sunday dinners from Hamilton. And I guess seeing the skyline as we turned into, they lived on High Park Avenue in Toronto and you, you could see the evolution of the city of Toronto going. And there it was, there's a, there's a, drawing of um, Toronto without the CN Tower that I drew as a three-year-old. And uh, so it's, it's kind of cool that they, they kept that, although I've misplaced it, I don't know where that drawing has gone, but um, I remember I used a red crayon and it, you, could, you could pick out you know, some of the buildings from the eye of a three-year-old. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, it seems pretty advanced just to even have that thought, like I'm going to draw a skyline and, mm -hmm. and you can recognize some stuff. So that's pretty well, I think it also, it also helped that my older brother, David was a bit of a drawer himself. And I remember he used to draw these city scenes of usually their disaster scenes where planes were crashing into buildings and people were falling out of buildings. And I, and, and then he had all these little detailed things, much like Richard scary, all these signs and of, of you know, uh, storefronts and things like that along a main street and so I emulated that as well and thought that was pretty cool that's one thing is that you know you, you grow up with you have siblings and they're they're going to be a big influence as well right. uh, so when you discover like the, the comic style um, did, were there any other influences like did did comic books come into your life what other things were you looking at to, mm -hmm. to nurture your artistic talent? 
Yeah, I I knew you're going to get to comic books, and I'm I'm going to have to disappoint you. Comic books did not actually play a um, a big role. They were in our house. My dad collected comic books, and they were. I remember they were in the the storeroom, and we went through it like rats. And I think we ruined a lot of them. A lot of them that would would probably be worth a lot of money. These were comic books from the 1940s and and uh, even the 30s. And um, I don't know where they are now. I think we destroyed them. Superhero uh, comics or? Superhero, yeah. Like Superman and Spider-Man and whoever was around in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess um, as, a, as a kid, I, I, would, I would read them, but I wasn't, I wasn't really into the superhero um, kind of genre. I was, I was definitely into the Mad Magazine. And so, you know, I get my allowance and I go take my banana seat bicycle to the convenience store and buy my bags of chips and pop and the the up-to-date edition of Mad Magazine. So obviously, you know, the the influence of Don Martin and Jaffe and Argonis was there. Um, But it, it... yeah, it was. I just loved the satire that was in that. I was immediately hooked to that, you know. And I was also a kid that watched a lot of TV. So when you had these satires of television shows, I, I certainly made a connection to them in the Mad magazines. Well, we have that in common because uh, one of the things that my my dad collected as a kid was Mad magazine. So yeah, when we'd make our weekly trips to the comic. A shop. One of the first comics that I got introduced to uh, was was Mad, and I was also a, a person who was uh, ra- watched a lot of TV because my my mom was a was a working mom, and so we had a lot of babysitters and daycare workers and stuff. And <laughs> they would always uh, inevitably watch you know soap operas or Annie or whatever. So if I was home from school, uh, you know it it ended up to be that you know, the way that I could tell time was I had a show that I could potentially watch every hour. So depending on what show was on, I, I knew what time it was, sort of, sort, of, <laughs> sort of thing, you know? It was a clock. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I, I don't think, well, that's the thing is that I you hear a lot of people disparaging about the, the watching of TV, but I think, you know, the 70s and 80s were, were a golden time of, television for for kids i mean i i love flintstones i loved uh gilligan's island little rascals were always being played leave it to beaver all these great um pop cultural pop pop cultural um shows that you know would mold the young mind you know you you can get that from books you can get that from comic books but television plays um, an enormous part in a lot of um, our minds, and while it might be politically incorrect to say that, you know, let's let's give it its due. I mean, that's um, it was a big influence for a lot of us. Well, and for the work that you do now, I'm sure it exercised like your comedy muscle, like figuring out what was funny and what wasn't, and then just having like a a frame of reference for culture and like what was happening in the world and stuff. You know, I, 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 I'm sure like maybe 
your your kids kind of are annoyed because like your pop culture references might be a little dated from back then but <laughs> but still like uh you know i i would imagine that that's where you got your like your comedy chops like figuring out what was funny and what was satire and that sort of thing. right i mean the wonderful thing nowadays is that you have youtube so you can <laughs> you can introduce your kids to a lot of the comedy that you grew up with and one of my you know, SCTV was one of my shows that I just loved, and uh, I watched it. And I, I even had a VHS machine, and I would record these these SCTV programs, and I rewatched them and watched them over and over and over. And and now we got YouTube, and you can watch them on YouTube and on our smart TV. And I, you know, the rare times that my kids are actually in front of the TV with me, I'll I'll put that on, and they'll groan. <laughs> And then I'll put on these these timeless classics from SCTV um, that may may not be so timeless now. I think they they do share they they do get worn with time, but um, that's pretty much the the backing to a lot of my humor growing up. It was uh, you know Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Joe Flaherty and and Martin Short, wonderful comedians who are still around to this day doing work. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I love SCTV. It's like the backbone of Canadian comedy. Absolutely. Uh, and the fact that like Shit's Creek is still a thing, or yeah, you know, is, is, you must love it. Like fabulous that's and like a reunion, and even nice knowing because Eugene Levy is a is a fellow Hamiltonian, and <laughs> it's uh, it's so great to see those two are are at it still to this day. And I'm pretty sure they'll come up with something, you know, in these in the post Shit's Creek. Um, world that we're now in. <laughs> right, right. Wow, that's awesome. So uh, I guess, like, you know, one of the other things, too, is, like, you know, because, uh, you know, MAD was, was so influential, I mean, it recently, like, shut down. Yeah. Like, they're not doing any new uh, issues. Plus, uh, Mort Drucker uh, passed yep. away. So we're losing the usual gang of idiots. Uh what what is your reaction to that and the way bad uh, has changed uh, and and gone away and like now it's in the past and, and people are people are passing away uh, as a yeah. fan how does that how does that hit you? It's sad and uh, I'm I'm certainly one that I love my 80s and 70s nostalgia but I guess you know demographics change and and priorities change and humor changes and mad magazine was starting to to show its where um you know you, you can go back into history punch magazine used to be like a big you know satirical um publication as day and it went for years and years and it eventually eventually became outdated and closed its its doors um i think mad magazine had a very good run uh, Playboy magazine had a very good run. Magazines have very good runs until they're no longer subscribed to. Um, I can look at another, if, if you want to get back to television, The Simpsons is another program that you know I, I tuned into in the early days and, and it, I went through it through, the, through my university days and into my, my life as, as a father with a young family, but even the the Simpsons. I, I haven't watched an episode of The Simpsons in years, 
I, I always keep hearing that it's that it's not as good as it used to be. Like that that you know, know. early to late nineties heyday has sort of come and gone. But I don't know because I, I haven't actually watched any of the modern yeah. episodes because I'm sort of afraid to. And why why is that? Like why aren't we? Is it just because our schedules are changing all the time? Like I mean, you're about to become a father. I mean, I know approaching my fatherhood days, I was still watching Simpsons, but if you're not watching it, and I'm sure you watched all kinds of episodes when you're younger, um, something has obviously happened there. Uh, and something obviously happened with Mad Magazine that you know, we, we weren't buying the, the editions one after the other. Maybe it, it got into a, a rut and a slump, and maybe... The passing is is just uh, something that that has to happen, and we move on to the next thing to fill the void. Yeah, I, I found the Simpsons like when when the original writing team left, it kind of lost a little bit of its uh, marks, yeah. and it wasn't as cutting or biting as it used to be, and it yeah. started to look more like a modern cartoon. Uh, and plus, other things took over, like like Family Guy, and and they started being, you know even more boundary pushing you yeah know, I, I remember like the simpsons when i was like a little kid was something i wasn't allowed to watch but i ended up watching it <laughs> at summer camp like secretly and then and then eventually my mom couldn't stop me from watching it but like it used to yeah. be like the most you know biting satirical thing yeah. on television and it used to be like the worst thing that your parents wouldn't let you watch but now there's like way worse things than the simpsons uh, and things that are like smarter and stuff you know like after like stuff like South Park and Family Guy, The Simpsons looks, you know, tame. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, the, the subversive quality. And I, I remember that in the early days of the show and they are touching on things that no other cartoon was getting into. And yeah, I, I think the subversiveness of things is something that makes things popular mm-hmm. and, and, and the following grows, but yeah, over time it's become very tame compared to these other shows. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. put the pushing of the envelope is, is, is done very much better with other programs for sure. Mm-hmm. And with, with more trucker passing away from, from mad, I mean, he did a lot of the, movie satires that became uh the staple and and those were sort of things that you you looked at so was he at all influential on on your your art and what did you think of him as an artist he i think he was uh he's you know i'm i'm 50 51 even for me i'm he seemed a little bit um he seemed to appeal to an older audience than, than than my demographic. So I I didn't really pay much attention to him, quite frankly. I mean, he he did a lot of satires that went over my head, <laughs> a lot of movies and things that weren't really in my viewing at the time. So maybe if I was a little bit older, I'd actually pay more attention to him. I was I was more into the Al Jaffe's and you know the the Don Martins the the, the that sort of thing. Um, political satire, for whatever reason, I got into more um, with with not just in Mad Magazine, but what I was seeing in the daily newspapers, uh, which 
we, and we had like all the big Toronto papers and the Hamilton paper come to our house. Um, so I guess Mort Drucker, his passing, yeah, I, I certainly, um, uh, I, I knew when it happened, but it, you know, I, I guess I, I'd lost touch with him so long ago that, uh, you know, I, um, I, 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 I can't say I, I had much of a reaction to when he died, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I definitely lost touch with Mad also, and, and a lot of those artists, but like, uh, yeah. you know, I, I remember like they used to be like so influential to me and my, my, my dad's name is Mort, so uh, oh. <laughs> they have that in common too. So yeah, I, right. I, I definitely took notice uh, when that happened. Um, in terms of like getting into like editorial cartooning and that sort of thing, and uh, you know the newspaper and stuff, were you a big newspaper reader as a kid? Did you follow like the comic strips and stuff like that? Also, uh, how did you sort of get your you know penchant for like following current events and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, I um, for whatever reason, I guess. Um, uh, my, my, I would hear my parents talking about politics all the time around the dinner table. We were a family that actually every night we'd sat, sit around the, the dining room table and, and we'd uh, talk about the day's events. Uh, my grandparents, I would hear their political views all the time growing up in the 70s. So they were very, very much vocally um, critical of Pierre Trudeau back in those days. And I'd hear it. And uh, I think you can't help it, but you're going to be influenced by your parents um, as, as a kid. And I guess to impress on my parents, I, I kept a watch on the news and to, to figure out what they were actually talking about, I, I became glued to the nightly news and to the, the newspapers that would uh, I'd find in the, scattered around the, the living room. Um, so I... At an early age, I got to know the differences in what a provincial government was and a federal government, what the local government was, world news. And I became fascinated by power, the power of presidents and the power of prime ministers and kings and queens. And, and I guess that was sort of something that went along with my interest in cartooning was just political science in general. How do these people come to power and uh, that sort of thing? Um, the the nightly news was something that we we would always watch as well. The National, I was watching the CBC's The National when I was like ten years old, wow. and um, I I've been doing that <laughs> pretty much since I was a ten year old. I I'm kind of embarrassed to say. What do you think of the new format of The National? without Peter Manfred. <laughs> I don't mind it. I mean, I don't know why people are so critical of it. Uh, Peter Mansridge was great when he was, when he was there, and Knowlton Nash was great. Um, they had to come up with someone to replace each one, and I think they came up with a, a nice broad range. I mean, why not have a panel of people? I think they're even scaling that back, so it's Adrian Arsenault. And um, who's the other fellow? I can't, I can't, his, his name is... In Hannah Mansing? Oh, he does. He does the um, the West Coast thing. The uh, the Asian guy who's relatively new to the CBC. Oh yeah. Um, 
You see, he's he's so new that we don't even know his name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. It'll come to me maybe later. And then um, you, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so like, what about like? Did you ever read like like stuff like The Far Side and like those sorts of satirical cartoons? Like for me, like waiting in the doctor's office to get my, you know, when I used to wear orthopedic splints, I think you know, my sensibility for like what satire was sort of came from Oh absolutely the far side and things and things the like far that. Side, the far side far side Herman was another one. Herman was one that came before Far Side and mm -hmm. I have all the treasuries of Jim Unger's great cartoons. And then, you know, there to back to that subversiveness, there's a subversive quality in in the far side that went even beyond um, Jim Unger and the Herman. Uh, the the comic the, the Herman, uh, and he went into areas like so, just sublime areas that are still to this day that so timeless, and so hilarious. And you know you, you can pick up a copy of of the of his uh, of the Far Side books, and I think he came up with three big ones, and they're just so packed with with humor, and um, you know you you have so many people that have sort of emulated that. Uh, narrative kind of approach, you know, of the dull and the weird. And uh, it's it's just a timeless thing. And I, I, st I still try to employ that with my, my cartoons to this day. And how could you not? It was just, it was just a different way of, of, of making people laugh. And um, yeah, those, those are certainly influences of, of my time. And I have, I still have all those books to this day. Nice. So how did you go from being, you know, just somebody who like drew ever so often and, and was pretty you know, politically conscious as a kid to someone who wanted to draw professionally? Like, was that always on your mind? Like, were you a person who knew what you wanted to do from an early age and just knew that you wanted to be an editorial cartoonist? Or did it take a while to sort of find yourself? I always drew and I always drew political people. I remember when I was a kid um, in grade six um, during the Iran hostage crisis, you know, we had this sinister guy called the Ayatollah Khomeini who had led this great revolution in, in Iran and was just this scary frown facey kind of guy who you'd see nightly on the TV. And, you know, he, his regime had captured 400 and so American hostages, and for for well over a year and a half, this crisis went on. You know, when I'm a, when I, I guess I was 11 years old, and I remember in, in the classroom drawing Ayatollah Khomeini's, and and the kids around me just thought that was hilarious. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, all the kids know who Kim Jong Un is to this day, uh, because not only because of the satire. Uh, Seth Rogen, you know, the, the interview and all that, mm -hmm. but just because he's such a, a, a crazy comical guy and he's on team bad. Well, team bad back then was Iran. It kind of is still to this day, but you had like a focus of evil and that was the Ayatollah Khomeini. And I remember doing uh, a little satire back then and it was just an advertisement, drink Ayatollah Cola. And it was just a picture of Ayatollah Khomeini holding up a, a bottle of, Ayatollah Cola and kids just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. There's so many people 
uh, as I do this podcast, who sort of decided to draw professionally because of the feedback and like the positive reinforcement that they got from like being the cool kid in school who could draw and like mm-hmm. people, people really admiring that. So uh, yeah, because the, you know th- that that would lead to caricatures of teachers and that sort of thing. So I got. I got that reaction from kids just drawing the Ayatollah. Well, I happen to have a a very uh, um, flamboyant teacher uh, named Dr. Rambaran in grade five and grade six, and he had these great sideburns, like these you know wonderful sideburns, and and so drawing him was was the natural next step. So you know he was the authoritative guy in the classroom you know he's like the president or the prime minister and there was drawing these very uh, subversive cartoons of uh of the teacher and you know passing that around people would get their giggles and so yeah that that sort of reaction is something that uh, becomes an addictive thing so you can't stop after you see people laughing and so you move on to the next teacher and the next teacher and then you're you're drawing people in your classroom and then you you start taking on the role as the classroom artist or cartoonist, and uh, that that started. You know, I, I'll credit grade six and grade seven was the time that that happened. Did that continue in high school? Like a lot of people, uh, you know, drop their interest in in comics or drawing uh, during high school because they want you know, they're focused on like girls and stuff, but did you continue Mm -hmm. being the classroom cartoonist and drawing throughout (laughs) high school as well? Yeah. The nerdy qualities continued even well into my high school years. Uh, um, Yeah, it didn't stop. And I wasn't a sporty guy, so I wasn't out there impressing the girls with my abilities to dribble a basketball or anything. But I wasn't really using it to... You, can, you don't really impress the girls by your abilities to draw either. Let's face it. Right. Uh, so uh, I guess through high school, you know, you you, you kind of want to impress the people with the knowledge of, of world affairs. It's also, you might dislike high school so much that you, and I think that was kind of me. I, I, I wasn't, a, I didn't like my time then very much. So, you know, you, you look around the world and see what's going on in the world and you start drawing, you know, the, the leaders. And that's what I was doing. You know, Gorbachev came to height when I was in high school. Uh, Reagan was the president when I was in high school and then George Bush. And, um, you know, drawing these external figures was kind of an escape from the drudgery of high school life and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, it just, it just kept going. It didn't stop. (laughs) And the university came and then it it flowered there. So what, how did you get into university? Like if somebody who didn't really like high school, like, like, but you, it's like sort of a necessary evil. So, Mm -hmm. uh, what did you end up decide to do for university? Like, what did you, what did you pursue? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my dad, you know, he's, he's a dentist and he always said, you know, don't, don't be like me. You know, you can maintain your ability in art, but you gotta, you gotta find a, a degree. You gotta make money. So, um, 
my interest was naturally in news, political science, power, and that sort of thing, history. So, and I, those were the subjects that I did well at. I was, I did horribly in science. I did horribly in math. Um, and it was an anxiety thing. I mean, it was, I, I look back, I still have nightmares of my time in those math classes where I just failed miserably or science. Uh, but, you know, I made up with it by kind of becoming a little expert on global affairs, on, on politics in Canada and that sort of thing. And um, so political science and history was a natural thing to take. And the natural place to go was Ottawa. And Ottawa University is where I ended up, University of Ottawa. Oh, so, um, yeah, because th then you get to be, like, in the seat of political power in Canada, and you get to, like, actually, like, live and breathe all that stuff, right? So Yeah, and it was the geekiness, you know, I, I was a, a nerd. I mean, I, I followed all the conventions, the political party conventions in the 80s, and we had a whole bunch. We had a big transition from Pierre Trudeau to Brian Mulroney, and, and so each party had their convention in 83 and 84 and and there i i just i just thought wow this is this is fantastic stuff like just stuff that my my friends at school just thought what what's your problem like that's not cool that's kind of really nerdy <laughs> <laughs> but you know there was a, a, a subculture of political nerds through high school and i i became I joined up with the Liberal Party and the Progressive Conservative Party when I was in high school. And, really? Uh, so, so where would you like? Where would you say like your politics lay? Uh, were, were you sort of like a? Were you always going to be like the the objective one, or like you know taking on both at the same time? Like, how would you describe uh, your politics and 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 your viewpoint? I was definitely under the influence of my rich dentist father for sure <laughs> i mean he he was he was a guy for low taxes and we got to get this trudeau out of office you know so you know um i was i became a, a big fan of brian mulroney and I, I even met him when he came to uh hamilton on a, on a rally I, I rode my bicycle to the field where dundurn castle is and he was having a little rally there and it was just a few months before the election. And I got to shake his hands. I didn't get to shake his hands once, but I think I shook his hands twice. Um, and, you know, that was kind of cool. You're, you know, you're, you're seeing like someone who's on the TV all the time, who's very, who's very much recognized as becoming the next prime minister of the country. And that was, that was a very cool thing. And it, it started up this, um, this sort of collection of meeting politicians when I was a kid. So I, I got to meet Bill Davis and then I got to meet David Peterson and Bob Ray and, and uh, all these people who were coming to town. And I was that geek that would go and meet these, these people. I would, I would say though that I tried the progressive conservative party as a kid and I didn't like the people that were in there. They were a bunch of jackasses. And so we formed the Liberal Party um, uh, local association when I think I was in grade 11 or 12. And, uh, 
And that was a different, I mean, it didn't really matter whether it was the conservatives or the liberals. Your, the idea was just get into politics and, and meet up with other people. Maybe you'll get some free booze out of it. But it's, you know, you could wear suits. You could uh, maybe travel to conventions and, uh, and have some fun and maybe meet famous people. And that was, that was the lure of getting into politics when you were a kid. Yeah, Brian Mulroney, I always liked as a guy, but now his son, Ben Mulroney, sort of rubs <laughs> me the wrong way. Uh, and I don't know what it is about him because he, doesn't, he didn't do anything to me, but I don't really like Ben Mulroney. And I remember watching the one and only Canadian taping of the Colbert Report live that was happening during the Vancouver Olympics. And I was sort of near the front, you know, because of the benefit of my mobility scooter. And uh, I saw Ben Mulroney sort of like off to the side of the stage before before they started it. And uh, just to like stick it to him, I was like, look, everyone, it's Ben Mulroney. So like everyone would turn and look at him and he'd have to <laughs> awkwardly wave and stuff. And I, don't know, uh, I thought it was hilarious. But yeah, uh, Ben Mulroney, I don't like for some reason. And I don't know. I don't really know why. Uh, it, there's a bit of a, a, a Donald Trump Jr. kind of thing to him. It's there's something there's something kind of slippery about the guy. That's for sure. But I mean, why? I mean, he hasn't. He's not a really political guy. He's just a a guy that has really white teeth and you know the the shock of gray. And he, he can. I guess he can be annoying. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess in the Donald Trump Jr. sort of way, he just seems like he's not very authentic his wife seems very authentic and genuine but like he just seems like he's got he's got some sort of agenda all the time, all the time. i guess i don't know i don't know either i i wouldn't be surprised though if he uh he he goes into federal politics sometime in the future it right. happens yeah well yeah family <laughs> dynasties are a theme in, in Canadian yeah. politics these days so uh for sure um, so like, how did you, like, how did you apply this interest and all this stuff to, uh, you know, to, to like being an editorial cartoonist? Like, how did you figure out that that was even a job that you wanted to do? Uh, did you, were you going to go into politics first or were you always like, no, 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 I want to be, I want to be a cartoonist. I want to be part of the fifth estate. Like, how did you, how did you transition into doing what you do now? I think there was probably a time in which I did think that politics was going to be my future. And if it wasn't going to be politics, it'd be something in the public service, you know, working for a, you know, a department in Ottawa or something like that. Um, I, I, I don't think I really had aspiration. I didn't, I don't think I really thought of, of editorial cartooning or cartooning was something in my future. Um, uh, I guess as I got up to the upper levels of high school, animation might have been something that I thought about doing. Um, and I did tinker with the idea of going to Sheridan. You know, it's just down the highway from where I live here in Hamilton. So that was something. Um, but I think it, it really, the, the reality of getting a job even back then in, in the um, 1987 was was pretty low. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of um there weren't a lot of jobs out there for for animators or for editorial cartoonists for sure or, or any kind of cartoonist so um political science was the natural thing to go to maybe it would lead to to law law lawyer becoming a lawyer was something that, that i even 
entertained, but I'm too stupid to be a lawyer. So that never, that never panned out. Um, I, I mean, the greatest thing, and, and a lot of people don't really recognize this, was if you go to a university or a college, it's not, a, not necessarily what you're learning there. It's what you're doing at these places. So when I started work at the student newspaper there, uh, submitting cartoons that were very much in the style of Gary Larson, um, that's when I knew I got a call back from the editor there that, oh, we love your stuff. You're going to see my... You're going to see your cartoon printed in next week's edition of the Fulcrum. And I, I don't think it's unusual to hear this from a aspiring cartoonist. When you see your work actually show up on newsprint, it is like a life-changing thing. And uh, when, I, when I saw that happen for the first time there in Ottawa, my cartoon is printed in this, in this newspaper and, you know, 5,000 people are going to see it. I thought my goodness, this is, this is a calling. I got to keep this up. So like throughout the rest of the time I was at the University of Ottawa, I, I submitted work every week. And then eventually I went to meetings and, and I started hanging around there and I became the graphics editor at the Fulcrum and all in the space of about two years. Amazing time. Do you, remember, the, do you remember what your first cartoon was? Uh, yeah, it was... Um, it was a cartoon. It was kind of a dumb cartoon when I think of it in retrospect. A cat scan slices make late night yummies. And it was like a guy, a bald headed guy, and he was lifting like a slice of a brain out of a pizza box. <laughs> <laughs> like it made, and it's not like I was, I, I didn't take drugs when I was in, in university, but a lot of people would, would see that and think, wow, I wonder what he was taking right. at that time. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, you were just going into like what it was like at the, at the student newspaper, uh, you know, paint the picture for me. Like, like you said, it was like an amazing time. It was an amazing time. I guess it was nerve wracking. I, I wasn't, you know, I'm an introvert. And so for the longest time I would just, um, slide my cartoons under the underneath the door of the newspaper on a Sunday night or a, a Saturday night when no one was there. And uh, I became a bit of a mystery guy to a lot of these people until knowledge got out that I was the guy who was submitting these cartoons. And um, I was sort of um, taken in sort of underneath, uh, beyond my will. <laughs> And I was asked to come to a meeting and then I met people and they made me feel comfortable. And, um, and that was the beginning of, of more stuff being printed. And then, you know, with the student press back there, you'd get a lot of empty spaces and they, they didn't have anything to put in these empty little boxes. And so they just say, Hey Graham, you know, could you give us a little filler for this? And then that was kind of fun. <laughs> and then it eventually, you know, you get sort of addicted to seeing your stuff in the paper, a comic, and then that sort of blossomed into a regular comic strip. And I, I started doing a comic strip called uh, Alas and Alack, which was kind of a parody of, or a satire of the government of the day in Ottawa. And uh, I had a, a roommate, actually. He, he wrote it, a lot of the script, and I drew it. And that went for... A good year and a half in the, in the paper and it was picked up by some of the other 
student newspapers at the time. So it was, that was my first um, syndication experience right there. When the, you know, a paper like the Cord Weekly in Kitchener, Waterloo was, was starting to run my cartoons that were simultaneously being run in the um, Ottawa, University of Ottawa folk art. Very cool. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, obviously, like, did you didn't like financially benefit or anything or anything like that for that? It was just sort of a sort of a boon to see your work in in other papers, right? It was when I became graphic center. I got sixty bucks a week, uh, so <laughs> which was great. Sixty bucks was beer money, um, but it was uh, it was a voluntary thing, and over time you end up. I was and I was spending a lot more time doing newspaper stuff than actually doing my studying. And uh, it basically led to me never really graduating from the University of Ottawa. But, you know, it gave me the grounding for what I do today. So whenever my kids or my wife, you know, mock me for not graduating, I always say, well, who needs, who needs a degree when you're an editorial cartoonist? So, Yeah, totally. Where do you find, like, the thing about editorial cartoons that, that always fascinate me is, like, not just the fact that they can, like, key into a likeness. Like, I know how caricatures work. You try to, like, exaggerate, you know, at least one or two features and, and that sort of thing. But, but I think for editorial cartoons, what fascinates me more is, like, how do you find the joke to, like, to go with the actual cartoon? I think hmm. that's the more difficult part. It's like finding the joke that will that will land, or, or finding the comment that you want to make, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. How, how do you how do you think so that you come up with something that'll like catch people's attention that way? Well, I think at least what I try to do with each of my cartoons is I try to try to put something visually funny in each one of my cartoons so uh, in case your gag really falls flat at least you have the backing of a visually interesting image to take the cartoon a little bit although some cartoonists say that's no that that ain't, that ain't gonna work you really need to have like a a funny joke uh, and and often the funny joke is what really makes the cartoon but if you're if you're someone who has admiration for the visual, then um, you could have a really flat joke, but if you have a really good image, uh, that's all you really need. You know, but if you get the, if you get two of them together, then wow, you've, uh, you've done a terrific job. And um, you know, there are days when I, you know, we all have, you know, bad cartoons like we've we've all like i i have my a, f a long list of bad stuff that I've, that I've drawn but i i'm pretty happy with with some of the visual stuff i mean the visual stuff really i think is is something that will will save the cartoon and is it just a matter of like paying attention and like you know reading newspapers and staying up on current events and having a particular point of view or or bent about the day's events to, to sort of find your idea yeah i th i think you really 
you have to have anger, um, catharsis, I guess is the proper term. Uh, and you got to put that into your work. Obviously, you can't just wing it and, and, and muster up um, anger, although sometimes you have to do that. Um, you have to muster up emotions when there aren't really any emotions there. And it might be because there's something happening in your life that is far more closer to you know, yourself personally than something that's happening in the news cycle. Um, yeah, you, you, you have to be on top of what's going on in the news. Um, and you have to have, be on top of what are people really talking about and what do people really care about. And that is a daily challenging thing. You, know, you also have to hope that the newspaper is going to carry the story that you're drawing on. And it's happening where I've drawn something that I might have read in another paper that saw no light of day in my local paper and that's that can be frustrating yeah wow yeah because you don't want to be the only one making the comment i guess for editorial cartoonists which is different than a journalist like a journalist can like pitch a story and and mm -hmm. and write about it and be that singular voice in the paper but you have to comment on like what's actually in the paper so if it's not in the paper mm -hmm. uh, your cartoon's not going <laughs> you'd go again right mm -hmm. yeah. although there have been kind of funny times when I've drawn something that got no writing whatsoever, but th that my paper completely missed. And yet <laughs> there's my cartoon and the editor can look to that and say, Hey, well, at least uh, we did have a cartoon about it. Yeah. Diversity of coverage, right? <laughs> For sure. I guess, no, when in actually in actual fact, no, you totally missed covering that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway. And it, you know what? It happens a lot these days. It really does. Yeah. So how did you go from somebody who was sort of shaking hands with politicians to someone who was taking them down? Like, did something change in your head? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Netflix and, you know, anti-capitalism docs. <laughs> I just drew about that the other day. I've, I have been binge-watching a lot of uh, Noam Chomsky um, Netflix documentaries and things like that. Yeah, you know, I think if you're a cartoonist, you got you to gotta look at the politicians with a lot of skepticism, and I've, I've come to that point in my life. I don't know how... And there are examples of them. There are cartoonists who are partisan, and I totally frown upon that. I don't know how you can be a cartoonist and toot the horn for one party. And you see some of these uh, editorial cartoonists, especially in the United States, who toot the horn for Donald Trump, and they, they look like clowns themselves. You know? um, the idea of being a satirist is to is to um, skewer the, those who are in power. You're not there to toot their horn. And a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but some haven't really got that lesson. And, uh, you know, um, you can pander to your audience to some degree, but really it, when your guy is in power and he's making a whole ton of mistakes, you, it's very difficult and very challenging to toot that horn yet it's happening and it's played out on a daily basis here in North America all the time. You got to be conscious of, you know, as much as I'm giving it to the other guy, I got to give it to my guy too. 
the same thing. Yeah. I, I like to think that people don't really know where I sit on the political spectrum. I think that's the best approach that a cartoonist can take. You know, the, the, the spectrum tends to be filled with a lot of um, liberal, left-leaning cartoonists, but I wouldn't put myself in that category because then you get pigeonholed. You know, these are the glory days for all of these cartoonists with a, a clown like Trump in office. But then when you get a guy like Obama in there, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's a hard thing to do. Um, I think to be a good cartoonist, you have to pivot. And um, no matter who's in charge, you know, they're going to screw up. And our job is to, is to point that out when it happens. Especially when, like, internationally, people seem to love uh, Trudeau now, like Justin Trudeau, like, oh, your guys are so lucky. We have this clown in office and you have Trudeau. But, mm -hmm. you know, you got to find things to comment about Trudeau because, you know, mm -hmm. domestically, he's not everybody's favorite, uh, favorite mm -hmm. guy. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah, it is. It is a big challenge. And the shiny object is the, the guy in the White House down the south. And that's, that's unfortunate because readers, um, readers lose out because uh, a lot of the cartoonists are spending their time on international affairs when we have our own foibles happening up in, in Canada uh, with our premiers and our, our prime ministers and cabinet ministers, but it, and also our, our, our local councils and our, our mayors. I mean, more than anything, it's, it's those people who are in our city halls that have a direct influence on what we do on a daily basis. And they get off scot-free because there's no local cartoonist to, uh, to challenge their stupidity. Is it annoying sort of being in like the U.S.'s shadow? Because I find like, I find when, when the U.S. leans a particular way politically, you start seeing like these Canadian equivalent mimics, like mm -hmm. Doug Ford and Rob Ford, and that sort of thing. Like, like we seem to be a follower a lot of the time. Like, you know, even in response to this pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not like we closed everything down any earlier than no. they did necessarily. No. So it seems like everybody waits for what the U.S. is going to do if you're Canada, and then you. You know, you start seeing like the rise of the alt right in Canada because it's happening in the U.S. Like that sort of thing. Yeah. Is that is that annoying? Like that whole like it is see monkey do sort of situ sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, take for example the thing that happened yesterday. That the government um, just you know proposed a bill to outlaw what fifteen hundred auto semi-automatic guns in Canada. I mean. Uh, and then the backlash to that coming from, you know, the usual suspects in Canada, you know, they just sound like these gun-toting Trumpies that you would see, you know, storming the assembly in Michigan. But they're in our own country. And we just had like this major tragedy in, in Nova Scotia unfold with all these deaths. Um, I say good for Trudeau for doing it because they, they a, a president or a governor wouldn't be able to get away with that sort of legislation south of the border. Mm -hmm. um, but the reaction to that is very American indeed. And this is a country that, on, you know, we, we value the fact that we've got gun laws. And, um, and that's what makes us distinct from the, 
gun crazy Americans that everyone in the world has pretty much <laughs> can agree on. They're gun crazy. And we happen to live next to a country that is gun crazy. And we, we can try to control the guns as much as possible, but it, it's so difficult to do. But they didn't, they didn't seem to be there until, until Trump was in office. And mm. that sort of, like, you know, we, we sort of prided ourselves on being separate from the United States. And then, and then suddenly, you know, what's happening in the U.S., like you start seeing those pockets of people in Canada, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't really know. I don't really know how that happened. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, the, there's definitely influence that comes up from the United States as soon as someone comes to power. I mean, we've had our own local issues with uh, white supremacy here in Hamilton. Uh, and it, it, there's pockets of it all over the place. These are things that we, they probably were there before, but they certainly didn't get the, the attention um, that has happened when you have a president that actually says it's okay to to show your your you know your confederate flags and stuff like that it's uh it's just, it's amazing how much influence a president can actually have over an entire world right totally um so how did you find yourself at the hamilton spectator like how did you finally become a professional editorial cartoonist like you never really graduated from the university of ottawa so then what like wh- how did you well, figure it out <laughs> well my my side gig the way that i made money was working as a meat wrapper at a grocery store in uh in dundas at miracle food mark and so i made a lot of money because i was part of the union <laughs> the, there's a, a union that allowed me to make 13 bucks an hour 1371 an hour i believe and uh and that was just wrapping meat at a grocery store and so that was that was my plan i guess i'll be a butcher if i can't be a a political scientist <laughs> and uh but in the meantime i i was drawing and um and i i made enough money and i wanted to see the world so i i uh, i made enough money to, to travel to europe and i went to travel to all the big cities for two months with a year rail pass and then I settled in London, and I found a job at Harrods, the department store, working in the poultry and game department, and latterly the bacon department. So I was doing all that stuff that I'd been trained to do at a, at a grocery store in, in Dundas, um, serving meat to aristocratic people. But at the same time, you know, I was going to the great museum the british museum and the victorian albert museum and all these great museums and drawing doing sketches of of all these relics that were on display for free the admission was i think it it is still to this day free and so i have these sketchbooks filled with all these antiquities that i drew so it was kind of like a self-taught thing to you know to advance my sketching abilities and Pen and ink came in while I was in in England, and it was a a great way to to while away the time and and time well spent. After two years, I felt I had to come back home and start life, and that's when I ended up, you know, in, back in Ottawa at a friend's place, and and then I started drawing caricatures of politicians and packaging them up and sending them to newspapers, and then. 
I would eventually see newspapers publishing the cartoons, much like what happened at the Fulcrum a few years before. But this time I was actually getting paid equivalent to the amount of money I was making as a graphics editor. My first cartoon was printed in the Toronto Star, and it was um, a drawing of Lloyd Axworthy, who was a foreign minister back in 95. And when I, when I, again, it was a situation where you see your cartoon for the first time in print in the Toronto Star, which was the biggest, and it still is the biggest newspaper in the country. And then you get a paycheck for that. And I think it was 75 bucks. And incidentally, I think it still is 75 bucks. Yeah. This day. Yeah. The, the, that same thing with freelance journalists, like the rate hasn't really gone up. No. Yeah. And I think the same way with photographers too. Yeah. But it's that was it. That was the the thing that that charged my engine. And then I started sending all kinds of cartoons across the country into the United States. The Chicago Tribune published a cartoon of mine, and then it was like American money was now starting to flow up. Mind you, these are like desperate, depressing, poverty-ridden days. Uh, um, where you're just scratching out a living. By then, my parents had also divorced, so I wasn't getting any money from Rich Dentist Daddy by then. He was now paying alimony and things like that to his, his former wife, my mother. And so there was no money there. I, we were all on our own. And um, uh, for, for years and years until I got my job, it was a, it was a really sad kind of money deficient time and I lived in Ottawa and I moved to Toronto during that time and I, I actually was still living in Toronto when I got the job with the Hamilton Spectator in 1997 and you know that whole effort of just sending my cartoons to newspapers I I was sending the same cartoons to the Spectator and then it, it caught the eye of of the commentary editor there and he gave me a call when um, a young editor-in-chief came aboard and he was looking for a new cartoonist. He decided, well, let's open it up. We need a cartoonist here. And so I went there and took some of my sketches and said, I want this job. And that's, the rest is history. In 1997, I was hired at the Hamilton Spectator. Wow. I was very lucky because nobody, nobody gets hired for, for such a job anywhere and it hasn't been that way for years so i'd like to tell people i was the last lucky soul to get a cartoon job and uh i i count my lucky stars that i, I i've been able to keep this job yeah um, over 20 years so yeah that's like a long long time and it, you, it, I, sorry first go ahead oh i was just gonna say like when you when you first uh had that thought of like you know i'm back in ottawa with you know, with a roommate of yours and, and that sort of thing. And I'm going to actually like lean into this cartooning thing. Like I'm going to actually send my stuff in. Mm -hmm. You know, what went into that? Like, what were you thinking? Like, I'm finally going to do this or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> this was money. I was getting a check in the mail and I thought, okay, this is one paper. Now I got to start getting more paper. So um, there was a whole... I mean, back then, uh, op-ed pages used to run like little graphics of politicians and things like that. Carrie Waghorn, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he, he's a Canadian who 
did the similar thing and there were a lot of them were of um the cross-hatching technique so that's what i was used was employing back then that was my style and um so i would i would just put together packages of of provincial politicians and local politicians and cabinet ministers and i i i gave them a flat rate i said hey take this package pay me a hundred bucks for this package and you can run these whenever you want so it was kind of a capitalistic entrepreneurial thing that i was employing there and the money started coming in and then uh, you know i could start doing subscription it was like a subscription-based cartooning thing where you know they send me a hundred bucks but a hundred bucks you know kind of cut out some of the competition in a way um but it what it what it gave me were tear sheets of these newspapers from across the country that were printing my stuff and then i could go to like i went to the guy at the hamilton Spectre and said look the guy at the times columnist in victoria the guy at in Halifax and this person in Brandon is, is running my cartoons. Why aren't you running me? <laughs> and so that, that helped get me my job at the, the spec. Did someone tell you that you should do it that way? Or did someone tell you like, you know, forget meat packing, you should do your cartoons <laughs> first or like, because even before the money, like I get it. Like, yeah, there's money. Once you get the one cartoon published, published, but what inspires you to actually send that first cartoon in? Like, I'm going to lean into this well, now. You know, you know what I mean? Well, I guess you hear stories from people who, uh, you know, you, you obviously I had my group of friends who were also cartoonists or, you know, in the field of illustration. And, and back in the day, that's how, you know, you, you got stuff published in magazines and things like that. And, so, you know, they encouraged me and I took it on. It's like, I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep wrapping these chicken legs, but I got to find something that could possibly get me out of this gig that I'm staring down for the rest of my life. And, um, yeah, I just, a stamp on an envelope and a, a name of an editor at a newspaper and, you know, we'll see what happens. And I was lucky. A lot of there, you know, there are a lot of people that didn't bother like, responding, but um, you know, it was it was a cold calling um, system that panned out. And you sort of had a you know unique sort of factory scattershot approach of like mm. here are these packages like that's unique. Like I think most people think, oh, you got to like pitch a drawing one at a time, but you had like an entrepreneurial like heisenberg way of like making this a making this an industry absolutely and they were coded and i could i i had like charts that told me where i was sending cartoons to and where i'd forgotten to send cartoons and these aren't these are just caricatures right these aren't things that these were like evergreen cartoons that could could go anytime um and uh you know, it was a it was a scientific kind of thing. It was a Heisenberg kind of thing, as you say. It was really uh, there was a system that I developed during that time, and I I still have the books to this day. And I look over them; they're pages upon pages of like stuff that I I'd recorded and and had to check through just to make sure there wasn't any duplication and that I wasn't you know irritating the 
the editors. Yeah, pretty, pretty smart. Uh, side question, just a little bit of a digression. Is Herod's as insane as people say that it was when you were working there? Like, could you like buy a plane out of the catalog and <laughs> that sort of thing? Yeah, an elephant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they said you could buy an elephant. Uh, <laughs> I think... I think you could. I, it was crazy. I think there was, um, I think, have you been to Harrods before? I have not. I, I do want to go like, because of these stories. It's a, it's a bit of a ridiculously massive building full of, I mean, it's like a department store, but stacked upon stacks of department stores and really over the top um, opulence of things that are overpriced and it's ridiculous, but I, I think you have the stuff for the, the tourists and the general folk to go through, but I think there was another uh, department that catered to the uber-rich at the time, and I believe that that's still there now, that you can, they'll, they'll look after whatever you want. I do remember there, there was a funny thing, uh, Dodi Fayed was the, the head of Harrods when I was there, and I remember the story of of uh, it was Muhammad Fayed that was the father. Yeah. Dodi Fayed was the son that was, you know, got killed with with Princess Diana. And Dodi Fayed had a hankering for a certain kind of mustard, but he was up at his palace up in Scotland, and he actually sent a helicopter to Harrods in London to pick up that jar of Harrods brand, you know, Dijon mustard, to uh, take it back to his palace back in the north. I mean that that was a sort of clientele they're catering for. Obviously the sun, but um. can you imagine you're in Herod's and suddenly you hear like this whirring chopping? You're like, who is who is that? And then suddenly this helicopter is like descending on the roof. Yeah, we need to get a <laughs> jar of mustard up to Dodie. <laughs> totally. Wow. So, um. You know, going back to like the longevity of your career, like that—that that is so rare. Like you are, I don't know, what what would you call it? Like like a like a what's a, a rare bird? I, a I, rare I, bird? I, you know, a legacy? Am I a legacy? I don't know if I'm a legacy, but because like in the in the industry, like like that's unheard of. Like a twenty-year career at a at a single newspaper. It is, and like no fluctuation. Like you you still go into the office and everything yeah. like that. Do you yeah. think you're just lucky or, you know, were conditions just right? For uh, it helps I'm in a union. That that certainly helps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is a history of editorial cartooning, a very rich history of editorial cartooning at the Hamilton Spectre with Doug Wright, who worked there for years, and, and Blaine. And Blaine was a cartoonist that I grew up with as a kid, and I admired his work and his the his brush technique was amazing. And I think that certainly helps me being preserved as a cartoonist. I don't, you know, there was a time when there wasn't a cartoonist between me and Blaine. And I think the, the editors heard a lot from the public about that. And they, they demanded them, they demanded a return to that spot. And, uh, I've been lucky to have that, but I can tell you the, the, the data on our website shows that uh, cartoons are still a very popular thing. And it's a, I think it's a guarded secret that a lot of 
editors don't really want to know, but cartoons still have um, a very favorable rating on newspaper websites and newspapers in general. But, um, you know, you're hearing it from me, but it's and, true. And when they have, like, the the legendary reputation of somebody like Doug Wright to fall in the footsteps of, I mean, I guess that's that yeah. pressure because because he was pretty prestigious. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, they want to they wanna kind of follow that legacy for, for mm -hmm. whatever it's worth, right? Well, I, I didn't know Doug Wright personally, but I knew Blaine. Mm -hmm. and, and Blaine was the cartoonist from the early 60s all the way up until the early 90s. So, you know, 30 years, 30 some odd years. Um, and he, he saw that I got the job. I, I got his job after they gave him the buyout in the early 90s. So it was, um, it was a bit awkward because he would come in and, you know, he'd, he'd have, you know, he's a very chatty, he was a very chat, very, very chatty fellow. And he could tell you a million billion stories about his trials with editors and things like that. And I heard a lot of them. And he also wasn't shy about, you know, giving out his critique. And that was, that was very helpful. And the constructive critiques are very important, but it was something that, you know, it was awkward as well. Cause here you are, you're, you're taking his job, not taking, I didn't, I don't I don't say he willfully retired from, from the craft. And uh, here I was in his position. And, you know, over the time, like Blaine has, has always been seen as a, a rock star, like any cartoonist, whether it's Duncan McPherson or Blaine or you know, Bob Chambers or the whole, there's a whole list of cartoonists in this country that are looked upon, you know, because at the time in the 1970s when newspapers were the king, that's when they saw these, these rock star editorial cartoonist. So I've always seen myself as walking the, in the shadow of these great cartoonists who were um, once had a much, much bigger fan base than any of us in, in the business right now. Do, do you find that you get a lot of editorial freedom? Because a lot of what I hear when I watch like, you know, documentaries and editorial cartoons and, you know, how the industry is sort of uh, constricting is that like a lot of cartoonists face a lot of censorship from their papers, particularly like the ownership groups of their papers. Mm -hmm. But what is it like at the Spectator? Like, do they have to like rein you in, or do they give you a lot of uh, freedom? And do you feel independent? Um. They, uh, they're very good about giving me um, whatever I want to do. Um, and it, it helps having had the same editor for the most part for the, the past 23 years in uh, Howard Elliott because he understands what satire is and what my job is. After you work for so many years, you get to know the boundaries. But I do see other newspapers where, you know, or owners, particularly in the United States, where um you have to go by whatever you know the corporate line is and too much criticism of their darling whoever it might be in the governor's mansion or in the white house too much is gonna you're gonna lose your job and i don't think that happens in canada very much at all 
Um, and we're lucky that way. I think for the most part, news, newspapers, they'll intervene when they, they think that you've gone too far, when you've gone over that boundary. And I think it's almost expected that, that occasionally we'll go over that boundary. It's, I think the, the editor knows that um, sometimes they got to spike the odd cartoon because, you know, it just the, the, the reaction will, will mean um, canceling of subscriptions. And that's in, in the, this day and age, you can't have that happen. So that's the bottom line is you got to like protect your bottom line and subscri subscription cancellations or something that they're going to get their backs up against. Have you had any close calls with that? Like where you go over the line and you didn't think you did, but they thought you did or, or, or that sort of thing. Like, uh, Oh yeah, you know, oh, for sure. Are there any like things you can share about like times you thought this should have been published, but it wasn't or, or something like that. And how do you resolve something like that? Yeah, I, funny enough, it's the local cartoons that um, worry them more than anything else. I had a cartoon that was spiked um, uh, after I criticized the president of McMaster University here in, in Hamilton. Um, and it was around the time of the, the, the Gomery inquiry into shady dealings with the prime minister and the you know, the hotel grand mare and, and a golf course and stuff. And McMaster, right in the middle of these hearings, um, the, the university announced who their honorary uh, recipients of doctorates would be, and one of them was Jean Chrétien. So I did a cartoon that um, showed Peter George at the time, who was the president, uh, reading a list from his castle, his ivory castle, surrounded by, you know, the, the Senate or whatever. And um, he's reading a list of these criminals, known criminals, who are about to be given doctorates. And the editor-in-chief did not like that at all. And he uh, made it quite clear that that, that was not going to show up in, in the, uh, on the editorial page that day. And uh, that, that, kind of alarmed me and kind of worried me because I thought, well, come on, I've spent all this time drawing this. I don't think, you know, you're getting a lot of criticism in, in the paper, but for this image to be spiked when you're seeing similar sentiments being expressed in the letters to the editor, uh, I'm starting to wonder, well, what, what, what's my position here? Am I a propagandist for you or am I a visual columnist? And uh, I think editors-in-chief come and go with different looks or, or different uh, outlooks. You're either an independent cartoonist that has your own mind, you can speak your own thoughts, or you have to toe the line of the, of the company. And I've, I've had to toe the line of the company several times, that, that being a, an example. And it always hurts, but you, you have to like protect your job, right? Like that's essentially what that is. I absolutely, you don't yeah. want to get fired. And, uh, you know, there, there are cases where I can, I can cause a cartoon that causes a huge uproar that might've been completely missed by the editor. And, and the editor might be very upset at me because he's getting all kinds of calls the next day because he totally missed the nuance or missed 
um, something and he's, he's having to answer the angry calls that are directed towards something that I created. Um, and I've, I've had, I had, I've had episodes like that a lot more than being spiked. So do you, do you live in fear? Like as, as a journalist myself, I, I can't imagine working at a newspaper because I'd always be afraid that like, I'd get a buyout like every day that I came to work <laughs> kind of thing. And I, and I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit more secure like online because at least I'm with the technology and, and that sort of thing. But like, yeah. are you, are you constantly afraid of potentially <laughs> losing your job? <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much so. Especially now. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's always been hanging over my head. For as long as like, but I remember, um, I remember even like 15 years ago being called into my editor's uh, office, and he was saying, you know what, the, the quarterly numbers are out, and I'm, Graham, I gotta tell you, this is uh, this is really worrying me. I'm really worried about this, and this was 15 years ago, and I've had similar encounters with different editors since then, and we're living in a world now where there's no one in the newsroom, but you know, there's a chitter chatter that, that, that happens on texts between uh, journalists. I, I, I chat with reporters all the time and it's all about, you know, articles that you're seeing. Oh, the, the Winnipeg free press just issued a 20% cut to all their journalists. You think it's coming here? And so I'm getting back to my boss saying, well, did you see this thing in the Winnipeg Free Press? And then he's getting back to me and he says, I haven't heard anything about it. And it's, it's like this weird kind of thing happening where we're all on pins and needles waiting for the, the big axe to fall. And uh, it's, it's an anxiety-ridden time right now in, in Canada, obviously, with the pandemic. Uh, we're, we're, we're losing newspapers all the time. Uh, we just lost a whole bunch with post media last week, like newspapers that have been around for hundred a hundred years, mm -hmm. and uh, it's I, I, you know, for you for a few years now, I've been saying I don't expect to have my job next year, and then the next year comes and I still have my job, so mm -hmm. I can say that right now. I can say I, I'm not going to have a job in a year, but you know, I've been saying that for fifteen years, so. So how do you, how do you, like, is there a, is there a pivot? Like, are you putting things in place or are you just going to mm. ride it out and yeah. die on the hill? Kind of? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've been thinking about taking, you know, bathroom tiling or something at Mohawk out here in, in Hamilton, something, a backup plan or, of some kind, because, you know, when when the gauntlet falls, when 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 the axe falls, I don't know if I could live. I certainly couldn't live the lifestyle I live now in a nice house. Um, I, I would have to really seriously if I if I I would have to change my life if I was to lose my job. Um, but uh, you know I've also argued with my my um, editors because they've wanted me to scale back my online presence and start promoting, you know, links with the newspaper in order to get clickbait and all that sort of thing. But I, I tell them, look, I got to brand my own self because, you know, I don't know where I'm going to be in a year from now. I got to keep 
a presence online. I have to have a very healthy website. I've got to have social media stuff that promotes me as a cartoonist. Uh, I do my best to promote the company, obviously, but you know, when you're a freelancer, you promote yourself and I gotta, I gotta maintain that sort of thing. And I think they understand that. Mm -hmm. And they, um, it, it, it took a little bit of instruction to tell them, look, whether you're a cartoonist or a journalist and you're working for a paper and you're comfortable in a staff job, you as the editor in chief can't tell me if I'm going to still have this job a year from now. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep giving you the clickbaits, but don't tell me to stop promoting my, my brand um, because that's the thing that will possibly be the thing that gets me through t until my dying days. Right. Yeah. Have you, have you thought about doing something like a comic journalism, like going the way of like Joe Sacco and like actually reporting a story as a cartoonist? Has that, <laughs> has that ever crossed your mind? Yeah. Um, actually with West Tyrell, we, we were, you know, in the days that he was actually the editor of, of Yahoo Canada, um, we were talking about doing the long form uh, graphic where, you know, you start from the top and you, you know, you scroll down to the bottom. And I'm sure you, you've seen some very fine examples of that with mm -hmm. by other graphic cartoonists, but there, I, it's a very difficult thing to do as well. And it's something that would take a very, uh, progressive outlook to actually employ someone to do it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to do that. And I started working on something on uh, water quality, uh, just, you know, something that involved researching um, where does our water come from and, and how do other countries rate as far as water purification, that sort of thing. And I thought of just, you know, getting some facts together and, and putting some graphics alongside to make it a, a, like a nice infographic long form piece of, of uh, journalism. Uh, but it, it kind of went nowhere. It's, but it's something that's certainly in the back of my head where you can mix, you know, your talent for journal for uh, graphics with, um, you know, just getting knowledge out there as far as facts and things like that go. Or you could be somebody like David Collier who sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, reports on his own life or, or the lives of others. Yeah. Know, just publishes his own like graphic novel. Oh yeah. You know I mean? And my goodness, David Collier, what a treasure that, that guy does and, and is. Yeah. Uh, his, um, and we're lucky to have him here in Hamilton because he's done such tremendous uh, journalistic work and uh, just, just little segments of time that, um, you know, a hundred years from now, researchers can be pouring over it and they'll, they'll see this beautiful paper of record. Um, it's, I'd like to say that the cartoons that I do are, are, are kind of like that when you, you can actually uh, put a chronology of any kind of any given theme, any given subject that I've done and you can, um, put together like a, 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 a chronology, a record of history. Um, I've done, you know, take example of um, <laughs> sewage in Hamilton. Like we've had our own sewage issues in Hamilton. And, and for the last 
10 years I've been drawing about that issue. Um, transit in Hamilton is another thing. Mm-hmm. If you get if you put my cartoons together, you could basically do a chronicle of the story of Hamilton's failed, you know, quest to get an LRT system set up. And uh, this sort of in the back of my mind of of doing like a a nice little um, uh, graphic in 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 the same vein as a Collier kind of thing um, for future reference to see how things were in this in this time right right and i would definitely buy like a Graham mckay anthology or retrospective yeah. or something like that so yeah yeah well i that's something that's in the back of my mind I, you know i'm coming up to the 25 years and and maybe i'll throw something together i don't know because i mean at the same time as like newspapers are shrinking and like oh my god like you know they're not going to be here like Canadians really respect cartoonists. Like I think the, you know, that, that this is serious uh, Canadian indie comics exhibit is a good example. Like you were in that. So as much as you are afraid of losing your job every day, you know, you were mm-hmm. respected on the museum circuit for, for, a, for, a, for a time, for a few months, right? <laughs> so how was that? What was that experience yeah. like? It's very nice. You know, anytime any of us can get in a, into a big city art gallery is a major thing because, you know, we're, the work we do is often look with disdain. You know, you're just an illustrator. What are you like? You're no, you're no, you know, Monet or you're no Picasso. You don't belong here. So that sort of recognition is always something that I greet with, with, uh, cheers. And that was a fantastic um, exhibit. Uh, Joe Ullman and uh, company there at the AGH put together. And it was, um, it, yeah, it's, it's like that time when you see your cartoon in print for the first time to see your art, you know, not only be on the wall of a, a great art institution, but you're surrounded by all this wonderful work and people that you uh, highly respect as well. So it was, um, you know, strength in numbers is, means a big thing. And yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was so amazing. Like that exhibit brought me to Hamilton. I went to Hamilton <laughs> specifically for, for that exhibit. So <laughs> yeah. it worked on me for sure. Um, yeah. But to bring well, it back around before we, before we have to wrap up, um, you know, we were we started this conversation talking about the pandemic and how you're handling it and how it's affecting your job and how, you know, it's, it's sort of forced you to evolve and that sort of thing. But you are also working on, um, you know, cartoonists for COVID-19. With, it's like an initiative that uh, West and the Association of Canadian Cartoonists are putting together, right? Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, endeavor that we're... Uh we're undertaking. It's more of a social media thing, but um, if you go to uh, the ACC website, um, you'll see a page that's devoted to a lot of the cartoons that we, as an organization, have, have produced. And it, it ranges, you know, from the top cartoons. You know, Terry Mosher's there, obviously, and Mike Diatter and Bruce McKinnon, and then you get some of the local people like Tim Snyder and Scott Johnson. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a nice nicely packed uh, strength in numbers kind of um, exhibit of 
work that we've done during a pretty grim and depressing time. Um, you know, it, it's hard to find humor <laughs> in a time like this, and, but we've all managed to do it, whether it's, you know, making sour bread, you know, whether it's, you know, doing sing-alongs on, on Zoom and stuff like that. So Wes thought it was important that we, um, we, we shed some light on, on what we as cartoonists are doing because, you know, you know, we can use this pandemic as a, as a way to promote ourselves because, you know, a lot of us have, have lost um, contracts. We've lost gigs with smaller publications. So the money is, is the money flow is not coming as, as much as it was before. And um, so anything that we can do to shine a light on what we do um, while, you know, cheering up people, and that's not to say we necessarily do work just to cheer people up. We do a lot of, you know, thought-provoking, grim stuff as well on the reality of what we're living through. There's a, there's a, a heck of a lot of horrible stuff happening that um, we don't even know is, is happening with people's lives, not only people who are unemployed, but people who are losing their lives with this dreadful uh, virus. Um, so I think you, know, you can check it out. Uh, Wes also puts together, puts uh, forth a, a daily, it's more or less, it's, it's once every two or three days where he promotes one of our association members. But, you know, we just had to cancel our convention. We were supposed to all gather together. We, we get together as an association every two years or so. And we were, Wes primarily was in the plans of making this terrific uh, convention in Ottawa that was supposed to bring cartoonists from uh, Rod Emerson from um, New Zealand. There is one from Norway. Uh, there's a, we have a bunch of friends from the United States that were, were planning on coming. And of course, all the regular folks here in Canada, not only the staff guys, but the, you know, the, the guys and gals that make up the uh, local cartoon editorial cartoon front and cartoonists themselves this isn't just for editorial cartoonists and so this is something uh meaningful to fill that void although it doesn't fill you know we had so much planned um as far as uh, celebrating our craft and the craft of editorial cartooning and cartooning that uh, will not go forward now sadly but um you know this is something something that we can provide the world so is it working? Like, are cartoonists getting opportunities off of this? Like, are, are things happening for them? Mm. Well, you know, uh, I wish it was... I wish cartoonists would be spreading the word a little bit more than they, they are, but we tend to live very solitary, often competitive lives. We, um, we like to toot our own horn, but we don't necessarily want to toot the horns of our competition. Right. That's just a little bit of insider thing. I, I'm sure it happens yeah. <laughs> in, in other <laughs> genres of cartooning, but you know, uh, Mike Deatter has a huge following on Twitter and um, Wes shared one of his cartoons um, early on in the campaign. And you know, all, all Mike had to do was like retweet that and then our numbers went up. <laughs> on the Twitter feed by like 500 wow. instantly. Uh, 
you know, and so I've got a very small following, so I try to do whatever I can to help. But uh, it really takes the big guns of the uh, cartooning world to to share that. And I don't know, maybe in time, I don't think, you know, we've still got many, many, many more years, not years, maybe many more months left of this, and who knows. I can tell you this. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked since I think it was March 17th when it all started and five cartoons a week, I haven't stopped drawing anything other than the pandemic. Everything's been related to this. And uh, yeah, I never had to go through that before. I'm finding that as well. Like uh, I'm working for now magazine and it's, it's been weekly because they've had to change their sources of advertising because yeah. you know their usual theaters and restaurants are closed so they said we need a we need a personal finance journalist to talk about the the pandemic so so i, I know mm. somebody there and I, I volunteered and it hasn't stopped because they realized that like panic reading the news uh gets advertising and stuff i mean i guess the challenge of that though is that the companies that are advertising, you know, don't want to come across as profiting from a pandemic. So at the same time as, you know, now is experiencing numbers that they've never experienced in their history, there's still advertisers that are reluctant to buy ads in the same way because they're not creative enough to think about how they can advertise without seeming to you know, promote themselves when everyone else is struggling. So uh, that's a different challenge, but it, you know, it sort of puts uh, newspapers and journalists in the same position for a different reason. It's weird. Absolutely. It's, mm -hmm. it certainly is a challenge. And, and as you say, um, yeah, the revenues are certainly down across the board for newspapers, uh, but the clicks, the, the, I mean, we've we've gone well beyond all of our targets for for uh, digital hits, and that that's certainly putting some spring in the steps of the uh, the poobahs that run these these organizations. But, but you know, the money is not there. Um, I don't know what it's like at now, but you know, it's we're being subsidized by the government to run these full page government ads. And eventually that's going to end <laughs> and somehow you're going to have to fill the voids with businesses that may or may not be around in a few more months. It's, it's a scary, scary time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, there are the silver linings. Like if you're introverted and lazy like me, you like <laughs> the delivery and, and the curbside pickup and that sort of thing. But yeah, there's, there's going to be huge consequences for mm -hmm. everybody. It's going to change the makeup and, the way that we do uh, mm -hmm. business. But I mean, maybe there are people that are like, you know, we need a shakeup of the status quo mm -hmm. and, and maybe it has to come uh, this way, right? Like I, I know that there are some people who are excited and hope that like, you know, the whole system will evolve as, as, as mm -hmm. a result of this and we won't just go back to mm -hmm. uh, what we're used to living. You know what I mean? I. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about that more and more. I'm thinking, well, you know, we're starting to talk about reopening. But, you know, we're going back to the old, the thinking that, oh, well, it'll just be the same old capitalist system we had, you know, two months ago. But I'm, 
seriously, I'm thinking if if things don't change, what a massive disappointment. This is an opportunity to change things on all kinds of levels, you know. And I, I think of, um, you know, you, you look at Doug Ford. Doug Ford is a guy who I was ridiculing almost every other day. One of the things that he got rid of was the basic income pilot that was going, what well, was happening across the, the province in various areas. Hamilton was one that was utilizing it. And he got rid of it and I was criticizing him, but yet we're doing that right now. There, we have a basic income thing happening right now that is sustaining people's lives because mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't give them a basic income, well, then it, there's a domino effect throughout the economy. And uh, that I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be something if he's going to show his progressive cards. Uh, now is the time. Start start thinking about basic income as something that's going to go on after this. And much like after the pandemic and the first world war when they brought in income tax uh, throughout the world, I'm thinking this is probably going to be something that we um, we're going to have to employ for the long term, if not permanently. I'm I'm excited to read whatever he puts out, you know, after this that reveals, you know, how this change happened. Like maybe it's because his mother had COVID or hmm. or whatever. But but this this transformation that he's that he's going through is is quite remarkable, and I hope it I hope it sticks around. Yeah, I mean, I you, you can, I mean, he he gets a little over. I mean, anyone can can read a teleprompter, right. but you know, I, I think he's the tone of his voice even has changed yeah, since totally. this whole like he used to like the way he read mm-hmm. he'd be the classic populist guy who was almost like reading like scripts like oh and this is what we're it was just that's all changed and he's actually more genuine he's he's i i can look at justin trudeau and and the the fake thing comes out of him like syrup and always has and we've all we've all known him to be kind of a little bit uh over the top, um, but but Doug Ford is like uh, like when his voice cracked a few days ago talking about his mother. It's like, yeah, you you don't you can't fake that. Uh, you know? law, yeah, totally. but I don't know. I'm I'm thinking it's temporary. I'm betting it. This is you know it's not that difficult to act empathetic empathetic and and hand out money at a time of pandemic. I mean it, it's it's not working with some of the clowns in the world but most politicians are doing what's expected of them during a pandemic and i think we're all kind of surprised like well doug ford's like our own trump like what is he doing like he's he's actually doing what he's supposed to do and it's uh, yeah it's it's easy it's easy during a pandemic it's harder when things go back to normal that's for sure yeah anyway where can people find this cartoonist for covid thing because i want to do my part to try to uh, you know, sound the alarm and amplify uh, the voices of you guys. Yeah, well, if you you can Google it, um, ACC cartoonists. Um, uh, but, but I think the the full um, the full URL is acc.format.com, and uh, that will take you right to the. Cartoonists Against COVID gallery that uh, Wes is updating 
uh, every every few days. And there's um, a hashtag too, right? A hashtag cartoons against COVID. And I think if you type that into Twitter or Facebook, you'll you'll find a lot of the cartoons, right? Correct. And I use that almost every day, so there, it's it's populated with a lot of my stuff there. Um, but yeah, we're you know it, it's it is being picked up by a few people around the world, which is kind of nice to see. Uh, yeah, they they did dedicate a lot of time in that political video, Politico video mm -hmm. that Wes did to one of your pieces. And, yeah, uh, I, were you proud of that uh, that you got so much play? And, and oh yeah, I mean you get the attention of Politico. I mean Matt Worker is uh, he's one of the best cartoonists in in the U.S. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist, but he's also a friend. Like our. We go to conferences together, conventions, and we have little drink ups, and um, so we all know each other. We all, a lot of us, have palled around and done goofy things in hotel lobbies and stuff like that. So, you know, I I met him for the first time in Sacramento at a convention a couple of years ago with Wes, and uh, you know he's he's one of these very genuine, cool guys, and and so naturally you you know you you start up a friendship with these people, and so they lean on you when they have these international endeavors. So, you know, uh, I can name Ann Talmus, Ed Hall, Jack Oman, uh, and Matt Worker is some of the, uh, Kevin Callagher is another one, as these fantastic, very well-known cartoonists who are very good friends of ed editorial cartoonists and cartoonists here in Canada. Nice. Awesome. Well, that's good. Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, I, I want the, to direct them to that fabulous website that you have. That you have. <laughs> I do have a fabulous website, my <laughs> and it's nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> I get like I don't get a lot of hits there, but I do get hits from schools and stuff like that. You know, the teachers make their kids go through there and do their analytical pieces the great thing about that that site is that i put contextual stuff next to my cartoons because i don't have a memory for a lot of these cartoons I'll, I'll look at a cartoon that i've done five years ago and i'll say what what was i talking about but if i if i've encrypted <laughs> these cartoons like the way i have for 20 years i know what i'm talking about so if you go to www.makaicartoons.net or just put in my name Mackay and cartoons. It should take you to my website. It's Mackay. I've been calling you Mackay this whole time, and it's it's actually Mackay. Wow. Yes, Aaron, you've been calling me Mackay, but you know what? That's uh, <laughs> oh man. You know what? Sorry. I'm learning because I genealogy is my other passion. I do a lot of genealogy, and I'm finding out that's the proper pronunciation. So um, oh, okay. Uh, well, my dad had it all wrong, and uh, but I'll, I'll stick with Mackay. Well, that's what happens when you only exchange emails and you have to <laughs> hear somebody's name pronounced in real life. So, I yeah. know. Sorry, man. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's fine. I get it all the time. Yeah, totally. Are you, on, are you on Twitter or Facebook or those sorts of things, too? Can people follow yeah, you? Yeah, you can find it all conveniently on MackayCartoons.net. It's all up there. So. Nice, nice. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I bet you, you know, for you, like your favorite cartoon is the one that you're doing. So, uh, <laughs> I, don't, well, I, I don't know. I don't like any of my cartoons, quite frankly. I'm, I'm a failure. No, just kidding. Uh, you're great. You're great. All right, man. Hopefully we can meet each other in person when all this is over. And uh, we'll see you next time on 
speech bubble. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 